This month marks the 10th anniversary of the coming into force of the Equality Act 2010, a landmark piece of legislation that dramatically reformed and improved the laws on equality in the UK. Last month, to mark this anniversary, the National Secular Society released a report that examined the exemptions which religious organisations have succeeded in carving out of the Equality Act for themselves. It also looked at the negative consequences of these exemptions in the areas of employment, education and caste discrimination. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Baroness Lynn Featherstone, a Liberal Democrat peer, champion of equality legislation and former minister with responsibility for equality in the coalition government. Lynn will be discussing her experiences of getting the Equality Bill through Parliament, the opposition she encountered from religious groups, and the ongoing problems today caused by religious exemptions to the Act. I will then be joined by Megan Manson to give the NSS's perspective. Lynn Featherstone, you were an MP during the passage of the Equality Act 2010, and as a Home Office Minister and as um, Under Secretary for Equalities um, under Theresa May when she was Minister for Equalities, you helped to take the enabling legislation through Parliament. Did the Equality Act feel like a landmark at the time? Yes, it did. I suppose it was the bringing together of 40 years of equality legislation that was confusing everybody and not working that well. And I thought it was a huge step forward, um, which obviously it happened under the Labour government before we became the the coalition. And I led for the Liberal Democrats during its passage. And it brought together, you know, it was 35 acts, 52 statutory instruments, 13 codes of practice, 16 EU directives, and they weren't working. So it was a landmark piece of legislation that brought it together. And it pinpointed things, you know, if you look, if you look at something like equal pay, we clearly hadn't got equal pay then, we still don't have equal pay now, but it attempted to bring together those things and to enhance equality. It wasn't just the bringing together of all this disparate legislation. So, I mean, there are so many examples, but I think one of its landmark qualities was the public sector equality duty and the creation of protected characteristics. And those um, protected characteristics were age, disability, gender reassignment. I had many, many arguments in committee about the word reassignment because I felt it meant you had to have an operation before someone recognized that you needed a different sort of uh, protection for gender identity. It also included marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation. And um, I suppose even way back then, I didn't really feel that religion and belief should should be a protected characteristic, but that's a whole other argument. So it was landmark and it was the culmination of all the years of fighting and trying to bring some sense of ending discrimination in all its forms whatever the characteristic you had. The list of protected characteristics, um, so it was, a, it was a product of the committee then? No, no, the list of protected characteristics was part of the legislation brought forward by the then Labour government. I remember at the time, and speaking in the second reading debate when I led for the Lib Dems, I think it was 2009, 
that religion and belief should not actually be a protected characteristic because it would lead to the entrenchment of discrimination. When you were in government in the coalition and working with Theresa May, uh, were you on the same side about most of the equalities issues then? On and off. Um, <laughs> yes, I would say that Theresa May was basically determined to enact the bill. Um, the, the, one of the biggest differentials we had was actually not on religion and belief. It was on um, pay audits, on women's pay. But time moves on in politics and your positions change and you don't always get what you want. Let's talk a bit more about religion and belief. Now, when you and others were bringing the new bill before Parliament, who were the people who wanted religion and belief, A, to be a protected characteristic, and then B, later to have special exemptions in relation to um, religious organisations? Well, basically, the organised great religions of the world, but in, in particular, the Church of England and the, the Catholic religion, um, they were very fierce uh, about, uh, well, also uh, um, Muslims and Orthodox Jews, but um, they wanted exemptions so that they could continue to discriminate um, in terms of who they employed, for example. Um, and they felt that the new act reduced their ability to discriminate. And when I say discriminate, that would be something like if a Catholic school wanted to employ a caretaker, they would like it to be a Catholic caretaker. Whereas obviously in the um, provision of goods and services, mm. as was included in the Act, actually there was nothing about caretaking that you needed to be a Catholic. Um, obviously it was understood that if you were going to be a priest, you needed to be a Catholic if you were proselytizing. But if there was a job, say a youth worker, or as I say, a caretaker, then they didn't need. Um, however, that was a very, very fierce fight, and they won. Um, and how come they won? Just because an exemption was there that um, allowed them to say, for example, with a youth worker, that a youth worker was teaching and therefore it was proselytizing and therefore um, they should be able to discriminate and only have a Catholic youth worker working with Catholic youths. Outside education, what were the other major exemptions that religious, the major religions obtained to the Equality Act? Schools were exempted so that religious schools could be set up without breaching the Act. Funnily enough, what the National Secular Society is putting forward quite rightly, in my view, is to change that law so that state-funded religious schools including the Church of England, will no longer be able to promote the interests of their religious body above the education and welfare of their pupils. Then there was also, there were two schedules in the Equality Act which were there to stop any conflict with earlier laws that imposed um, basically Christian worship in all state schools, including non-religious ones. And again, I agree with the National Secular Society and removing the imposition of collective worship in schools I remember, for example, that at my primary school, there were seven Jewish children who had to sit in the library during prayers in the morning, and it made them different. In fact, I was one of them, and it's probably why at the age of seven, I told my parents I wasn't going to be Jewish anymore, because I felt so alienated and different. And I think that's what collective worship does. 
other parts of the Act um, made exceptions to allow the existence of uh, religious schools. And lastly, on education, there were two schedules, well, there are two schedules that allow schools to discriminate on religious grounds for entry into that school. And I can't remember which were added and which were carried forward, but either way, the Act needs changing so that you should not be able to discriminate in terms of, on, on religious grounds for entry into that school. And although there's been lots of accommodations where you're allowed X percentage here and X percentage there, the practice is, is harmful. Do you think that the public are generally aware of the importance of the Equality Act and what it can and can't do? Well, I'm, I'm certain they're not aware of the detail of the Act. I mean, it's a very long and a very complicated Act. But um, I think just as with the human rights laws, people seem to, because of the way of its discourse in the public space has become about human rights as, as sort of an, as an excuse for anything, as it is with the Equality Act, people seem to think it's um, to be used officially to, for people to take people to tribunals endlessly on tiny points and not realizing that it's actually holding people's rights to live their lives freely. I mean, of course it gets abused on both sides, but I think the public don't have a real concept of what this protection has done. The other side of legislation is often, it advances equality in, the, in, in this act by the message it sends out, that equality is something that gives you rights, that you cannot discriminate, and so on and so forth. And how that becomes part of our nation seeps into it, but it's not often propagated by some of our media. Do you think the media are at fault for misrepresenting the Equality Act? Well, I can't, I can't point to specific details, but yes, I think the media are often at fault mm. in using as a highlight something that is the truth, but misusing it as if everything depends in that specific way. But it was an incredibly important piece of legislation um, to stop the sort of thing that I, I grew up with when I first went to work and was sacked from my first job for not sleeping with one of the directors. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, the existence of the Me Too movement um, in, in recent years, does that suggest that the Equality Act didn't go far enough in protecting women against sexual harassment in the workplace? Yes, and I think that's very classic in as much as legislation gives you the laws to protect you. But getting to the point of court and getting it to be taken seriously is a whole other thing where society has to shift. But you do see societal shift when laws are made, eventually. If you think about the drink driving laws, when, you know, everyone used to drink and drive when I was at college, not me, obviously. Um, but it eventually society saw, because the law was there, that it was, it was terrible. People were being irresponsible and killing other people. Same with wearing a seatbelt, that was resented. Same with the laws around um, LGB issues. But gradually, once the law was in place and society shifted, and occasionally it's the other way around, because I, I was the uh, architect and originator of the same-sex marriage law, which encountered a lot of the religious resistance, the same as the Equality Act. In that case, the people were ahead of the politicians, but um, because in a way the religious fraternity is so strong in our country, 
it took a long time for it to get into law, but now it is the law. No one blinks an eyelid. That's a very interesting point you make about um, religious resistance also to the same-sex marriage bill. How do the major religions influence legislation in Parliament? Well, the key points of influence in Parliament are are the fact that this is uh, the Queen leads <laughs> is head of the Church of England, and the religions have always had a very powerful voice in Parliament through through the parties, but also bishops sit in the House of Lords as of by right. But their organisations are profoundly respected, and rightly so, when they have, in my view, an undue influence and have had for many years. Would you say that particularly, if they're equally influential on all um, MPs and all parties, would you say um, some parties are more liable to be influenced by religious figures than others? Well, of course, the Conservative Party has always had um, a very, very close relationship with the Church of England in particular. I think everyone listens with respect to the religious argument, but someone like myself believes that religions deserve freedom, respect, freedom to practice. But there are so many parts of the religious doctrine that cross with secular life or with non-discrimination, whether it's around homosexuality or educating children or those sorts of things. Is it also the case that, um, that it's, it's one thing to allow people to express their religious belief and another thing to say that their religious beliefs should be allowed to influence what other people who don't share them can do? Yes, yes, of course it is. I mean, I'm, I'm a live and let live liberal and I really don't see that you should seek to influence beyond your religion. And I have never understood I mean, there were just huge issues around um, schools, you know, in, in I think it was in Birmingham was the most recent um, example when sex and relationship lessons were to be taught. And there was a huge outcry. But I've never understood why parents cannot say to their children if their religion believes that homosexuality, for example, is a sin because that's one that keeps coming up and up over the, over the years why a religious family would not say to their child, we believe this is a sin, other people think other things, and we must respect everybody, and have faith in their own religious tenets to be strong enough to guide their children the way they hope they will be guided. But it shouldn't be something that stops people from knowing. Religion isn't about stopping people knowing about things, but they are strong, strong fighters. And as I say, during the same-sex marriage passage of that, they, the religions, the great religions of the world, fought tooth and nail for it not to happen. They believed it would undermine marriage. Of course, it does no such thing. It's, it shows how valuable marriage is for everybody. One particular issue that's continued since 2010 was... Um, caste discrimination. Now, the Equality Act introduced the power for a minister to say that caste should be included on the list of protected characteristics and thereby outlaw caste discrimination. Now, the present government have committed to actually removing this um, protection from the Act. What's your view about caste discrimination? Caste was uh, a huge issue um, during the passage of the Equality Bill. And I was lobbied intensely from both sides of the issue. 
But to me, the caste system is discrimination. That is that is his fundamental character. And of course, like all the religions that have come to the United Kingdom, because we are still a tolerant and free country, imported with different waves of immigration has been the caste system. It came with it. And I was a, a minister in the Department for International D Development for two years. And I saw caste um, and its practice and the horror of the status of lower caste despised and mistreated. And it is intensely still felt. And I remember the arguments about how we, I, was interfering in a system that had been there and it worked very well and it meant that's the order of things. But it is totally against equality. It is fundamentally against equality. And it is and should be a crime to discriminate on the grounds of caste. Now, the NSS has recently re released a report just in September 2020 about how religious privilege um, in many different ways continues to undermine equality law even today. And the name of that report is Faith Shaped Holes, How Religious Privilege is Undermining Equality Law. You, Lynn, um, wrote the foreword to this report. What were your reasons for doing so? Well, firstly, they invited me to do so. <laughs> um, but it is a passion that I have as a liberal. Um, I believe live and let live should be the basis on which we conduct ourselves in this world. I also feel that many of the problems of the world stem from religion. You know, growing up, I understood it was a force that was supposedly about love and forgiveness and charity and kindness. And then when I grew up, I found it was also the basis of war, deprivation, unfairness and guilt. And so it seems to me that when it comes to issues such as abortion, alcohol, homosexuality, employment, sex education, the great organized religions of our world want to have the benefit of our phenomenal equality laws so long as they don't have to comply with anything they don't subscribe to. So they want to yeah, have, have their cake and eat it. They definitely do want to have their cake and eat it. And, uh, you know, as I said, during the passage of the same-sex marriage bill, I was often the target of death threats and disparaging attacks from the religious orders. And my response to those who so violently attacked me and the legislation, and who were often the heads of the great organized religions of our world, was to use the words uh, advised to me by Stonewall which were my very strong advice to those who do not agree with same-sex marriage is not to marry someone of the same sex. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good response. And I would say the same in terms of the issues raised in the uh, National Secular Society report. Don't hide your children from knowledge. You tell them you're their parents and if they, believe, if they agree with you, they'll follow you. And in this country where we live and hope to live in harmony with each other, whatever our belief system, whatever our particular protected characteristics, and some of us have lots of them, um, everyone is equal and should be treated equally in all sorts of ways. A key principle of secularism in particular is that any form of unfair religious privilege should not undermine the rights and freedoms of others. So this is, this is always a question about balancing everyone's right to freedom of religion and belief 
against the possibility that, that some people may exploit their position to unfairly affect others. Now, as far as the NSS report is concerned, um, the three main ways which it identified there's still a problem with the current equality legislation are in terms of caste-based discrimination, which we've talked about, education, which you mentioned briefly, faith schools, and also employment. For you, what are still the biggest issues in these areas which um, need further reform? I do think that some of the exemptions that were in the Equality Act need reform because the religions, I fear, are misusing them to only employ people of that particular faith within their, within their circle. So that is one thing that needs reforming. Another is, I don't think, I really don't think that collective worship should be something in schools. I just don't think so. I think it is better for schools to have a morning assembly talking about life in general or the news or what's going on in school. I don't think it should be any form of religious uh, worship because as I described from my own experience uh, as a child, you don't want to alienate any group to feel one group is the main group or the more important group or that your your group doesn't matter. You're foisted off to the library while others uh, have assembly. So I think it's very important to remove collective worship from schools. Would this be an argument for getting rid of um, faith-based state schools altogether? This goes beyond what the National Secular Society are suggesting, or indeed what the Liberal Democrats, of which I am a member, have as policy. But on a personal capacity, I would love there to be that, that schools are about education and home is about religion and faith. Um, I don't think schools are the appropriate place for it, but that's not where this report is going at this point. It's trying to remove some of the very overt um, examples of where the exemptions to the Equality Act have enabled religious exceptionalism. But my view is that anything that is state-funded should not really include religion of any sort. It should certainly teach all religions in, um, in, re in religious instruction class or religious education rather, not instruction class. If you look at uh, what separateness does, it creates alienation and mistrust or superiority. I, as I said, I worked in Africa for nearly two years when I was DFID minister and I did spend part of every week mostly in Africa. And what I learned there, what I saw there, that any difference state-sponsored, uh, either through power or status or whatever, caused dispute and unhappiness, whether it was tribal, religious, ethnicity, it didn't matter what the difference was. The minute you um, entrench it in some, in some form of privilege for state sanctions, it causes wars, um, jealousy, one-upmanship it doesn't you know it just is not harmonious um and you know it's not that long ago since the troubles in northern ireland finally came to a blessed excuse the expression stop so the whole point of the equality act as far as you're concerned is just to give the best chance for people of every single belief or no belief to flourish and to work together I do believe that is it. I also think it is to stop the harms that are so in our base human nature that actually make us discriminate. And it's to help us stop 
being discriminatory because it is now against the law. As you say, you know, we can see in in many different societies throughout history, if the laws encourage a certain form of behaviour, then society goes in that direction. So if if they encourage a more discriminatory form of behaviour, then people will perhaps feel like it's more normal, whereas if they encourage um, a greater tolerance, then society, it may help push society in a more tolerant direction. We live in hope that that is what happens because you can see what happens when it goes the wrong way. So I think it is very important. I think the Equality Act reminds us of our humanity towards each other. Finally, then, what are the immediate practical steps you think that need to be taken um, to get the inequalities that we've been discussing? We need some new laws that will at this stage, in terms of what the National Secular Society is is wanting, will deliver legislatively the changes that remove the exemptions that enable the entrenchment of religious privilege. Len Featherston, thank you very much. I'm joined now by Megan Manson from the National Secular Society, and she's going to give a comment on my interview with Baroness Lynn Featherstone, in particular to talk about what the NSS's position is on unfair religious exceptionalism, um, the current state of equality law, and what needs to change. Megan, to start with, talking about the NSS report, which just recently came out about the issue of religious exceptions um, in equality law, Could you just clarify what are the main things that the report said about what needs to change in the current state of the law? So for this report, what we wanted to do was to explore where these, as we call them, faith-shaped holes are in the Equality Act 2010. So religion or belief is a protected characteristic. And so in theory, um, everyone should be protected by that because um, belief does include quite specifically non-religious belief. Um, So we basically did a deep dive into the Equality Act and looked for where there are religious exemptions. There are lots lots of exemptions in the Equality Act. Um, Some are uh, justified, um, but many others are not. And what we wanted to do was look for those religious exemptions that were potentially causing problems. And we found three areas where um, it seemed the most egregious, which were Um, in education, uh, regarding caste-based discrimination and uh, discrimination in employment. So what we did was we actually looked and found the specific part of the law that does this. Um, I think um, this is the first report of its kind to really do that, to really look at the the mechanisms behind what causes these exemptions. And with regards to education, there were multiple exemptions. So as we've heard from Lynn Featherstone, uh, collective worship and uh, discrimination in school admissions is all enabled by um, Exemptions of the Equality Act. These exemptions enable uh, schools to deliver an exclusive faith-based curriculum. Uh, They allow them to discriminate against staff in employment. Um, They even allow uh, local authorities to apply discriminatory criteria uh, in their policies for school transport. So basically, a local authority can provide free transport to somebody who is attending a faith school. And then for caste, caste doesn't have a particular characteristic, although many were arguing during the formation of the Equality Act that it should. There isn't an uncommitted duty 
uh, within the Equality Act to make caste an explicit um, aspect of race discrimination um, as soon as practical. However, more recently, the government um, sort of decided it wasn't going to do that. And the Parliamentary Undersecretary for the Ministry of Equalities, Kenny Badenoch, has confirmed that basically they want to take caste out completely. So essentially, there is nothing there protecting people who are vulnerable to this particular form of discrimination. So in terms of employment is, of course, another issue which was also raised by Lynn Featherstone. I mean, do you have anything to add in terms of what the NSS discovered about um, how religious exemptions affect employment? With employment, you have what's um, called genuine occupational requirements that do allow you to um, essentially discriminate um, on according to particular protected characteristics if you need to. There's, there's lots of um, times where you might need to do this. And with religion or belief discrimination, there are some legitimate times. So, for example, I think it's uh, utterly reasonable to specify that if you want to be a vicar, that you have to be a Christian. If you want to be a pastor, you have to be a Christian. But looking at the official explanatory notes, it looks like this exemption, this, the genuine occupational requirement exemptions, are only meant to cover a very narrow range of employment when it comes to religion. But we think that it's been applied a lot more broadly to that and it's been misused and been used by religious employers essentially to only have a workforce of one religion when there's really no justification for it. And that seems like like quite a, an abuse of the system then potentially. Yeah, I, I think so, yes. Um, that's, so yeah, we really want to see that looked into um, and to basically clarify, saying well, when, when can you do this? Because I think at the moment it's being overused. In terms of religious exceptionalism and unfair privilege, which is still in equality law or inherently in the system at the moment, do you have any particular concrete examples of how this affects people? Well, one of the things we wanted to demonstrate in our report is that this isn't just theoretical, this is real. And that's why we included quite a few case studies throughout the report um, in the education section. There are, we have some testimonials from parents and pupils and from teachers and governors as well who've um, experienced this. Uh, naturally, we found that um, people who are non-religious tend to bear the brunt of these problems. And very often, it's people who are already marginalised and who are especially affected by discrimination. So, so for example, single mums, because they can't attend church services every week um, in order to ensure that their child gets to go to the local school. Those are on lower wages um, and um, LGBT people as well. So it's basically that if you're already marginalised, and in terms of equality, the, the Equality Act, it's not really doing its job for you. So it's failing to protect the people who ought to be protected. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, we, we found this all out from um, signatures and from our online petitions. Uh, we, wouldn't, we, we didn't actually sort of look specifically uh, for this report. It's, it's people who've been coming to us and telling us these stories and signing these petitions for a long time. And all we needed to do was look through those. And we could find plenty of testimonials from people. Uh, for example, pupils being punished for not participating in collective worship. You know, parents who find that their people can't enter their local school because they don't go to church. Just the lots and lots of studies like that. There was one particular um, case study that we put in that is uh, particularly chilling because it involved a school that uh, isn't a faith school, and that's Burford Primary School, which um, it ha is a community school, so it doesn't have a, a designated religious character. And we heard from two parents who'd um, enrolled their children at that school because it was community-based because it didn't have a religious character. That's why they, they, they wanted that. 
And then the school joined a Church of England Academy Trust and things started to change. The parents heard that their children were attending assemblies held by the church, the children were encouraged to pray, that Christianity was positioned as the truth and children were acting out Bible stories. So the parents decided to raise this with the school and the school said, well, we're acting within the law. It says right here we could could have collective worship. And um, yeah, in a way, the school's right. You don't necessarily have to be a faith school in order to religiously discriminate uh, against children. Lynn Featherstone was talking about her experience of the extent to which um, the Church of England and the Catholic Church in particular influenced um, legislation through Parliament. Um, In your view, why is religious influence in general, particularly Christianity, but also other religions, still so entrenched in British society in the 21st century, even though about half of the population is probably non-religious? Lots of it comes to being a very historic privilege. The Church of England uh, is the established church. Uh, The Catholic Church as well has had a a very influential presence in in the UK for a long time. And because of the wealth and the power and the status that they've built up, they have this legacy um, which makes them a very powerful uh, lobbying force. And we did see, when researching for this report, we found that lots of religious groups were involved and consulted during the process. So it, it really showed the, the extent to which they were the reason why these exemptions exist. So essentially, I think what we've seen here was um, a you know institutions that are already privileged trying to maintain the status quo and trying to keep that privilege. Did you get a sense for the extent to which um, other religions that are represented in Britain, such as Islam and Judaism, also are enabled partly through the influence of the C of E to maintain their own privileges? I think that um, that the Church of England, because it is the established church, is sort of able to to hold the door open for other groups. So, you know, if if um, you you just gave privilege to the Church of England, other religious groups will say, "Well, hang on, what about us? Surely, if you're giving it to one religion, you should be giving it to us too." And politically, it often is easier to do this. It's much easier to just say yes to these groups. Say, okay, well, rather than tackle the harder problem, which is saying, well, actually, these religious groups shouldn't have the privilege in the first place. They've, they've got an advantage and they're over, um, um, they've got privilege that uh, the, the non-religious don't have. Is there anyone to represent the non-religious in the way that religious organisations um, represent the religious? Well, the things with the non-religious is they are sort of, by definition, they kind of have their own identity. They don't necessarily form groups. I mean, obviously, there are groups like Humanist UK, um, but I'd say the vast majority of non-religious people don't actively identify as humanists. It, a lot of non-religious people, they're just sort of religiously indifferent. They're not necessarily atheist. It's just religion isn't really part of their thoughts. It's not part of their life. So they don't really feel a need to be in a particular group, which, of course, has the disadvantage that it is much harder to, you know, to, to lobby with the same way that uh, religious groups can. The National Secular Society does try to elevate the voice of, of those people. We, Essentially, we're about um, achieving equality for all. Looking at uh, the issues which the NSS report has highlighted about the continuing existence of unfair religious privilege supported by um, equality legislation, what is the, what are the next steps? What what does the NSS want to happen next? Well, what we'd, we'd 
like to do is do um, draw the attention of ministers um, and volunteers to this report and to see these recommendations seriously considered and enacted. We really want to see the, the religious exemptions from uh, for education repealed and the, the laws um, that they sort of are based around repealed as well, so a repealing of the, the law requiring collective worship. We want to see caste included as its own protected characteristic, so not as an aspect of, of race because we think that caste is something quite separate to race, so we want that to be its own uh, protected characteristic. And we want to see the exceptions that allow discrimination um, if there's a genuine occupation requirement revisited and um, see some scrutiny on the um, organisations that are applying them to make sure that they're doing it in a fair way. What can members do if they want to support the NSS? Well, we really do encourage all our supporters to read the report and uh, to um, alert their MP to it. So you can do that really easily from our website. Um, you can use, there's a function that you can use to send a pre-written editable letter to your MP. And also please do come to us and um, let us know your experiences. If you think that, if you've read the report and think, oh yes, I've experienced that as well, please do tell us. Um, it's really helpful to know what people's experiences are and um, it can help to make things fairer further down the line. Megan Manson, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by the National Secular Society, all rights reserved. The views expressed by contributors do not necessarily represent those of the NSS. You can access the show notes and subscriber information for this and all our episodes at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. For feedback, comments and suggestions, please email podcast at secularism.org.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a positive review wherever you can. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us next time.